Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Anna Halligan, and tonight I am joined by my colleague, Matt Clifford, the staff attorney for Trout Unlimited in California, and water rights expert. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Hi, Anna. My pleasure. Um, yeah, so I'm really glad that you could join me to shed some light on a regulatory system that can be really confusing and hard to navigate. So um, I thought maybe we could just start with a quick introduction about what you do and how you found yourself in this position. Sure thing. I'm a staff attorney for the nonprofit organization Trout Unlimited, like you said. Um, more specifically, I'm a staff attorney for the California Water Project. So I kind of deal with all things water in California, particularly though I work like in coastal areas in California, you know, like the North Coast, um, with on, on water projects, projects with diverters to um, increase in-stream flows, particularly in the summer, like you know, or fall this time of year when the when the flows get really naturally low. To, uh, to help young salmon and steelhead. And um, as far as how I got into it, you know, I grew up, um, I was an outdoor kid hunting and fishing, you know, with my dad, et cetera, and really got to appreciate the outdoors and, and found myself after college in Yellowstone National Park, you know, kind of the, one of the fly fishing capitals of the world. And I uh, thought that was pretty cool for a few years. Went to, ended up in law school in Missoula, Montana, uh, another kind of fly fishing hotspot. And I, I just, as I was in law school, I was looking for things that I could, you know, I, I knew I kind of wanted to do that kind of work, but I was trying to look for things I could do with that degree besides going to work for some big firm and practicing law and making a bunch of money, you know. And, and, and I, re- I kind of got into environmental law through um, some of the um, activities there among, and, and, and ended up, I wouldn't say specializing in that, but I started practicing in that area just on a volunteer basis. Um, did practice a bit of law, um, but uh, ended up going on staff with an environmental group up in Missoula, Montana, where I worked for a number of years uh, quite happily. And um, just to complete the story, I ended up, I, I met my now wife up there. <laughs> she's in conservation, too. We like to joke, but she's actually in art conversa- conservation. She, she re- uh, restores paintings. Um, and so uh, there was a lot of art. Um, there was not a lot of art in Montana for that career, um, but there, there were fish in California. And so when she had a job in, at the Young Museum down in San Francisco, I ended up moving out here and um, was able to practice this career here. Fortunately, I kind of landed at a good place. And so now I'm working on water and, and, and fish issues here in California for TU. Thanks. Yeah, I always think it's interesting, you know, how particularly in the field of law, how someone gets, um, you know, specializes in, particularly in water policy. Um, so let's let's kind of start with that discussion um you know california has a relatively unique approach to water policy and water law the requirements for diverting and using water vary depending on several facts including the user's location the source of the water the method by which the user pumps or diverts the water and by the method by which the water is used. So there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, determining what is required for any individual to, to use water. Um, and so maybe we could just start with having you kind of walk us through the kind of framework for California water policy and the types of water rights that exist. 
Yeah, we can do that. There's a couple different kind of water rights that I think are going to be relevant to people um, listening in, in California here. We can talk about those in a second. But I'll start with a couple of really basic concepts. Um, by Like most Western states, you know, by the state constitution, um, a key concept is the water in California actually belongs to the people of, of the state. right? So when you have a water right of some kind, you don't actually get a right to the water itself you don't own that what you'd have is the right to use that water um and that you know in some ways can seem kind of like a like a distinction without a difference but it actually ends up conceptually is kind of important because there's there's a couple of broad principles that apply to all water use under all kinds of water rights um and the first one you know again the water belongs to the public and because of that when you have a right to use it that use which is regulated by water right all that use has to be reasonable Constitution says, um, and so we can talk some more about what that means. But that's that's a general, and the state has the, the ability to ensure that all water use is reasonable, and it has to be put to a beneficial use. You can't just use it for whatever you want. It's got to be some kind of, you know, use that's recognized um, in the law as as a good a beneficial use of water. There's a lot of those. It's pretty broad. It's most things that people would want to do with water, but you can't waste it. And there's there's legal doctrines that, that define, you know, just in general ways what constitutes waste. Um, of water and you can't you know you can't use more than you know reasonably needed for a particular purpose now it can be kind of hard to see these principles in practice sometimes because you'll see some things going on that look pretty wasteful <laughs> but in theory you know and sometimes you know as a matter of, of enforcement it is illegal to waste water it all has to be put to a beneficial use um, as far as water rights go there's two main kinds of water rights of surface water rights that, that are relevant um, most states have one or the other of these and in, in, in California being the unique, wonderful state that we are, we have both, just to make things more complicated. But the two kinds of rights I'm talking about are uh, riparian water rights and appropriative water rights. People may have heard of these. Um, and a riparian water right is what they have predominantly in the eastern part of the United States. And a riparian water right basically says that if you own property along a watercourse, so a stream, or a natural lake, if you own property that touches that watercourse, you generally have the right to use a reasonable amount of water from that watercourse. There's some other restrictions on it, and and, and, and I said in general, because in, in <laughs> I'm a lawyer, and in this field, everything, we always hedge a lot and say in general, or for the most part, or broadly speaking, because there's always exceptions to everything, but in general, those are the basic principles of a riparian water right. So, it's it's not something where you, you're going to have some document, you know, with an official seal on it that says you have a water right, you know, nothing like that. It's, it's just something that comes inherently along with the property. So a lot of folks listening to this broadcast right now, probably even if whether they know it or not, may have riparian water rights, uh, at least in theory, if you live along a creek um, that has water in it for part of the year. So that's the one general type. A second type is appropriative water rights. And these are rights, they were actually invented here in California back in the 1840s with the gold rush in the 1850s. And appropriative rights are different. They, they arose because when you had miners up in the mountains, um, they had the need to use water not on the property next to a stream, but like a long ways away from the stream. They have these big, long ditches where you might have a mine that was you know miles downstream and you're going to have to build some long delivery system and use that water. And you're going to have to invest a lot of money, possibly, in, in building that, you know, long flume or whatever to take the water from the stream to where your claim was and where you needed it to mine. And you needed to make sure if you were going to spend all that money that um, there was going to be water there and that nobody else was nobody else was going to be come along and take it. And if you're going to have that, um, 
you know, the water was going to be there when you need it. So they, they invented this appropriate water right system, which is first in time, first in right. So the first, instead of the water belonging to people who live along a stream, it's like, well, who used it first and put it to beneficial use? And so, um, th- th- that's a second type of water right. Practically speaking, um, and I'm talking in coastal California, places like Fort Bragg, most water rights tend to be riparian that people, that the water gets used under. And there's two reasons you would actually have an appropriative right and not just rely on the riparian rights to go with the property. And that's one, if you want to use the water somewhere besides on the land that's next to the stream. Because one of the restrictions of riparian rights is that you, know, you can use a reasonable amount of water for the stream, but you have to use it within that parcel of land that touches the stream. You can't use it on the parcel next door. Okay, and so to do that, if for some reason you need to do that, you have to get an appropriative right. Um, the second thing, and this is actually a really important one from my line of work, the second thing you can't do with a riparian water right is you can't store water. You can't, like, take water when it rains a lot in the winter and put it in a tank or a pond or something and hang on to it and say, okay, I'm going to use this in the summer with a riparian right. You have to get an appropriative right to do that. And that's really key in my work because the thing, and we can talk about this some more, but the thing that we really want people to do and, and really the way to adapt to the, the the climate we have in California where it doesn't rain for long periods of the year or the summer is we really want people to store water because that's a be- you know it's better for people that way, and that way we're not diverting it from the streams in the summer when fish really need it. So those appropriative rights can be really key. So I'll pause there because that's a ton yeah. of information. I don't know how much sense that makes to folks, but I didn't talk about groundwater, which is a separate thing we can talk about in a bit. But but I'll just kind of let that sink in, and we, I'll yeah. stop there for now. Well, and, and so, you know, it's interesting because, like, the ownership of water lies with the people of the state. And in that water right, the water rights convey only to the right to use water in certain times in certain places. And so my understanding from what you just said is it's like, you know, nobody technically like owns the water that they divert, but they can um, have a right to use that water. And there's basically two different systems in place that allow people to use Water. One is the riparian that you just referenced, which, um, you know, again, has limitations in how that water can be moved from its source and then how it can be stored. And then you have your appropriative water rights, which, you know, you, it sounds like you have to go through, or my understanding is you go through a, a more arduous um, application and authorization process but it may give you some more flexibility as a user to store that water and to move it across parcel lines or potentially even across basins and it's i think this is all really relevant because these are conversations that are actually being had in our county right now um you're probably really well aware that well the whole state (laughs) is in you know uh, an extreme drought situation and Mendocino County in particular has has really been challenged by that. And there are certain parts of the county that are incredibly water scarce. The village of Mendocino is a good example. Um, and one of the challenges is, is that, you know, they're going to have to rely on water coming in from other basins. And there's actually a, you know, regulatory framework in place that requires certain permissions before those types of transactions can occur. Um, right. I, yeah, go yeah. 
Oh, no, I just going to say, I know that's been in the media a lot, particularly in Mendocino, and I know the water's been trucked in from other parts of the state, and there was even like a, uh, you know, a question about whether, because you have to, even if you truck the water over to communities that need it, you've got to find a legal source of the water, right? And so it's, it's, the water has to be taken initially under some kind of valid water, right? Obviously, if you're going to truck water, you know, from one place to another across counties, you're going to need some kind of appropriate right because, you know, you can't, yeah, you're moving it off. You're moving it long distances, et cetera. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, and then maybe this is where we can talk for just a second about groundwater, because if, you know, and this is where it can get kind of tricky to actually determine if you are actually taking water from a groundwater reservoir or if you're taking water from a stream that's actually just below ground. It's called a subterranean stream. But, you know, so if water is being taken from the ground, the questions I have for you then, can that water move across basins? Yeah, I should talk about groundwater for a second. I've been avoiding it up to now. But um, in California, groundwater presumptively is a completely different realm from surface water. Now, in reality, that's a bunch of bunk, as any any hydrologist can tell you or hydrogeologist can tell you that surface water and groundwater really aren't different things. They're connected, right? Streams are connected to aquifers, et cetera. But the law generally, with some exceptions – because um, there's always exceptions, right? But it generally presumes that they are separate worlds. And so in the world of groundwater, um, I won't go into the details of it, um, but as a landowner, you generally have the right to the groundwater beneath your land, and you can pump that water uh, without any kind of permit from the state. Um, and, you know, you might, like in, in parts of the state, like the Central Valley, where there's a big aquifer and a lot of straws in that thing, you might get into conflict with your neighbors, and you might have a, some private disputes about, um, you know, who has a right to how much, but the state doesn't traditionally has not gotten involved in that. You don't, you don't need a groundwater, you know, a, a water right permit from the state to use that groundwater. The exception to that is what you just mentioned, Anna, was that there are some, um, streams. It's typically right, right near surface streams where the water in, under the ground will be considered to be flowing in a quote unquote subterranean stream, which is kind of a weird, ill-defined legal concept. Um, but there's <laughs> lots of arguing over what it means. But the bottom line is if you have a well too close to a stream, there's a decent chance that that well is going to be treated as though it draws surface water, not groundwater, which makes sense because, you know, as you would expect, just intuitively, if you suck a bunch of water out of the gravel next to a stream, you're pulling water that's, you know, otherwise it's going to affect the flow in that stream. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be good to do that and pretend like, uh, like it wasn't affecting other surface water rights. Right. So currently there are two water rights for um, users that are diverting surface water. There's uh, my understanding is there's not really any current um, policy in place for managing groundwater, but we know that that's changing because um, California, um, enacted the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act and that, you know, basically over the course of, I think it's probably less than 20 years now, but, you know, there was this idea that when that act was adopted that within 20 years um, the there would be kind of a sustainable implementation of this um, groundwater management plan. So there's probably more to come with regards to groundwater management I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I mean, that was a fair, there's a landmark bill. It was passed like in the middle of the last drought. I want to say around 2014 or so. I may be a year off there, but it was a really 
landmark piece of legislation, the, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Everyone calls it SIGMA because we like ugly acronyms in this field. But, but that was the first time that the state really took, a, you know, dipped an oar into the world of, of regulating groundwater. And, um, and what they did is that they divided the state, I forget how many, several hundred different groundwater basins throughout the state. And they prioritized them. They made a list of, you know, the, the ones with the, the, the most severe acute problems down to the ones that are kind of like, you know, not, not as pressing. And they just, they drew a line. And for all the most severe basins, I forgot how many this is, but it's dozens, they set deadlines saying you must have a plan in place within X number of years to sustainably manage that groundwater and, and to have, you know, permits and limits on how much people can withdraw. Um, and this is done at the local level by local agencies. So it's not done directly by the state water board, which is something different in water law. And that process has been unfolding in the high and the medium priority basins for, for a number of years now. We're, we're really starting to see more and more of these um, draft plans coming out um, with, with you know, proposed um, management measures in them. In fact, I think I got an email this morning for comment on, on, a, on a few of them out in the Central Valley. Um, and so that process is unfolding. And as that goes um, and those plans are written, eventually they will get to the lower priority basins, um, which haven't even started yet now. And so places like the North Coast where – I, I don't think there's a tremendous number of any high priority basins uh, like in, 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 on the coast, but but there are some medium ones, and I think we'll start to see some more um, management proposals in the coming years for a few areas along the coast. Okay, well, here's another question that I I've definitely heard um, frequently, and that is, you know, how does an individual know if they need a water right? That's a good question. Um, not so, so all water use, all surface water use, um, takes place under a water right of some kind, right? But, you know, for most folks, like if you live in a city, if you're getting your water from a company or from somebody else, um, <laughs> you know, you could be pretty confident you don't need to have a water right to turn on a tap in your kitchen, right? Because whoever's delivering that water is the city of Fort Bragg or, or you know, someone's got a water right for that. Or like in some outlying rural communities, like in, in Mendocino, I think, um, there will be there will be um, community service districts, et cetera, and, and even some smaller, like, associations throughout rural California. So someone has to have a water right for that. But like as a landowner, if you're a rural landowner um, and you live on a creek or uh, then, you know, if you want to use water from that creek, like throw a pump in there and water your lawn, et cetera, you, you again, provided your land that touches the creek and so if you have frontage along it, you can do that with a riparian water right um, and you, you don't need anything more than that. Um, again, if you want to use the water on an adjoining parcel, which is, does not touch the creek, that's the point at which you would need the appropriate right. Or if you want to store water, take it and go collect it in the wet season um, and, and save it for the dry season, which, again, is a good thing to do. Uh, so so that kind of water use where you yourself are directly using the water and not getting it from someone else is the, is the kind of area where you may need a water right. Now, a couple more things. If it's groundwater, uh, you have a well. Presumptively, you don't need a water right unless there's a. Uh, it, it looks like there's a, and this is in practical terms. Unless it looks like that aquifer may be connected to or close to a stream where it affects surface flow. Um, in that case, uh, you might worry about whether it could be considered surface water um, as a subterranean stream. That's a really rough guide. It's probably it's not legally. There's actually a four-part legal test that applies that about whether something's a subterranean stream or not. I'm not going to go into that detail, but I think what folks need to know is it's something to be 
aware of. Um, and that's, I know that doesn't sound like a very clear line. And that's one of the, one, one of the things about California water law is that it does have a lot of kind of gray areas and, um, and muddy lines like this that can be kind of challenging in practice. Um, the last thing I'll mention, um, in this is that there's one kind of water, uh, collection we know you don't need a water for, uh, excuse me, a water right for, and that's collecting rainwater off of a roof. Uh, because a, a legislature passed a statute back in 2012 just clarifying that if you want to have a collection system where you gather rainwater off of a roof and store, you know, then that water, you don't need a permit for that. Um, you can do whatever you want with that. You can store it. Um, you can put it to use, et cetera. That, that water belongs to you. You don't need any kind of permit for the state uh, for that. And so that can be a popular way just because you don't have any kind of permitting hassles, particularly to store water. That can be a popular way to collect water and store it for the dry season. Right, but so, but it has to hit your roof. It couldn't just be rainwater that's filling a pond, right? You would have to have an appropriative right then, correct? Well, <laughs> gray areas. If you build a pond out there, if the pond is on any kind of a stream, and stream is a really the thing people need to be aware of is like even the smallest, you know, in, indentation in a hillside can be considered a stream for purposes of water law. Anytime you're collecting water from a stream itself through a dam, you need a water right for that. If you have a pond that's like, say, on flat ground, that's just like, you know, has a dike around it, is a truly off-stream pond, not connected to any water course, the rain that falls within the footprint of that pond, you know, it'll collect, that's, you don't need a water right for that. You don't need a water right for overland flow that might run into that pond, provided it hasn't re- reached any kind of stream. But again, I say that to, you know, be really cautious about that because I've seen a lot, I've seen a number of ponds that people assume are off-stream ponds, which the state would not consider off-stream because, you know, they're up against the side of a hill and there's like a little bit of a water course that feeds them and those are, those are considered on-stream, but. Ah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. it's Colorado. Like once the rainwater hits the ground, they consider it waters of the state, but it's a little different in California, it sounds like. That's right. So that actually, though, I, brings me to another question, which I've heard this question a lot. I actually um, was posed with the same question when I used to run a riparian fencing program. And that is, so when you have springs or seeps, um, you know, a very common way to use and divert water is to, to create a spring box. So do you, how does uh, California water law apply to springs? So the general rule with springs, I'll tell you the legal rule, and I'll tell you kind of some of the practicalities. But the legal rule is that if a spring um, is what's sometimes called a true spring in that it doesn't flow off of your property under natural conditions at any time of the year, then you don't need a water right to use the water from that spring. And you basically own it. Um, if the spring flows off your property at any time, like it's like a little, you know, uh, it, it's like in a ravine or even just, it just surface flow over the ground and reaches a stream, or excuse me, if it flows off the property, then you do need, um, it's considered to be basically a water course and it's just surface water. You need a water right to use it. And that could be a riparian right, uh, since at least, you know, some of that water course is on your property where the spring is, right? You can use it as a riparian right. Or if you want to use it like on a neighboring parcel or storage, you have to get an appropriate right. That's the general rule. I can say that in, in the coast ranges of California, it's very rare because of the geology here. It's very rare to have a spring that actually qualifies as a true spring because there just aren't a lot of isolated um, um, springs like that that don't ever flow off the property and are unconnected to surface water. So I would advise people to use that with caution, again, because what might look like a an isolated spring to a landowner, um, state regulators would not consider to be so isolated. 
um, because subsurface flow in some circumstances can, can count as well if it flows under the ground and reaches the stream. Right. And the idea behind that is just, you know, I, I kind of thinking from the, 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 per, the perspective, maybe the, the regulatory framework is that our hydrologic systems are incredibly connected. So water taken from a spring could essentially, you know, could have been contributed to an actual creek or river. And so you have to kind of take all the parts, the whole into consideration when that's right when managing a yeah. resource like like water and that's particularly true in the middle of the dry season in california where those springs oftentimes are the only thing keeping surface water flowing those are really important sources so if people are tapping those springs that can have a real serious effect on on uh, stream flow and um you know other people's ability to get water and, and also fish and wildlife right so another um I kind of brought up that that some water rights are perhaps a little bit more um, require more time and information to secure like an appropriative right. Um, And so I wanted to kind of dive into the appropriative rights a little bit. And 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 could you explain there's there's two kinds of appropriative rights. And can you kind of explain what the difference between a pre and post 1914 water right is, and then talk a little bit about, you know, just um, how water gets appropriated. Sure thing. I'll talk about it. Um, so, how do I best to approach this? Appropriative, appropriative rights in the modern era come from the state. I think I started off the program by saying if you have a riparian right, you know, you don't have a certificate that says I have a water right. You know, it just comes with the ownership of your property. Well, in the modern era, appropriative rights are not like that. You actually do have a certificate. You have what's a, a permit or a license. Um, and those come from the state water board. So if I want to go out right now and get an appropriate water right for something, say I, I want to store some water um, from the creek on my property on, on a tank, for example, I know I need an appropriate right to do that because my riparian right won't let me do that. So I need to get one of those. So I've got to go to the state water board, and I've got to apply to them for a permit, an, an appropriate water right permit for that. And to do that, I have to go show them that I'm going to meet the basic requirements for an appropriate water right, which are I'm going to take that water and I'm going to uh, divert it and I'm going to put it to a beneficial use and I'm not going to waste it and I'm going to not take more than I need and I'm going to have a permit that tells me a bunch of conditions that apply to make sure that those things um, are true. And a bunch of other conditions, like I won't, you know, to protect fish and wildlife, for example, I have a screen in my diversion so I don't suck fish into it, things like that. And so that's how I got it. So I apply to the water board for that. And um, they then go through a process because since I'm taking water from a public stream, everybody else who's got a water right on that stream kind of has a dog in the fight, right? Because if I take some water there, there might not be enough left for them to satisfy their rights. So they all have the right to protest my new water right. And the state will do an analysis and will require me to do an analysis to show that there's enough water you know, in that stream to satisfy the amount that I want to take and still have enough left for everybody else. And increasingly in the modern era, still have enough stream flow left there for fish and wildlife by the time we're all done. And so the state's going to put terms and conditions on that water, right? Assuming it passes through that whole protest process and, you know, everyone's satisfied that I'll get a water, right? With it'll, it'll, it'll say what season I can take the water, like what months of the year. 
it'll say how much I can take, what rate. You know, it's going to be 10 gallons a minute or 20 gallons a minute or whatever. Um, and it's going to have a total amount, you know, that's usually in gallons if it's a small ride or, or acre feet if it's a large ride. Um, there's a the limit I can take throughout the year. And then that becomes my appropriative water right from the state. That's how we do it in the modern era. And all rights from the time the water board was created in 1914 forward, all appropriative rights have been created that way. Now, before the water board came along, back in the days literally of the Wild West, you know, from the, the gold rush onward, there wasn't a state water board. And so at that, that back at that time, the way you've got an appropriative water right <laughs> was pretty, pretty ad hoc. What you did is you went out and you basically announced to the world that you intended to put a certain amount of water to beneficial use to the stream. So if you're a miner up in the Sierras, you'd say, you'd, sometimes I would actually nail a notice to a tree, for example, and say, I have a right, I'm, I, I intend to take this many, they used the unit called miners inches back in the day, but you know, this many miners inches from this stream at these times. And that put the world on notice, okay? And then after that notice had been up, it's something, more typically you'd publish it in the local paper, right? Or you might do both. But anyway, you'd, after you'd done that, you would go ahead and put that water to beneficial use. You'd build your flume or whatever, and you'd start diverting water, and you'd put it to use like mining, or else you, you, know, you might put it to watering your livestock or irrigating a field. And by doing that, that, that is how you created the right, simply by the act of you know, using the water first before anybody else did, and announcing that to the world. And a lot of water got put to use that way. And a lot of water rights were created that way. And a lot of those water rights are still existing in the modern world. And they're out there. And uh, they're not governed, for the most part, directly by the state water board. Okay, so so it's interesting because a lot of times um, those claims haven't ever been tested. And so you'll find someone out there in the world like irrigating a field and they'll say, well, I've got a, pre a pre-1914 water right. And there's a good chance they do, but that right is only as good as, as the evidence that person would have to support it if some neighbor came along and complained and, and challenged it, right? So to have that water right, you'd have to show that the use the water had been put to continuous beneficial use since way back before 1914. And the public notice had been you know, properly done in those days, which, as you can tell from what I said, it wasn't very hard. But I mean, you have to show that all these things, you know, but, 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 that's the kind of thing. And the only way to do that is to go through a court case, right? And so it's a little tricky because some water rights, you know, if it's a post-14 water right, you can point to a piece of paper from a current state agency that says, I have this water right. There's not a lot of doubt about that. But for these older water rights, it's often not so cut and dried. And you'll see a lot of claims out there. And the thing to know is, like, they may or may not be valid, a lot of them. Um, just to make it more complicated, a few of them are valid, when they do get challenged, you can go through what's called an adjudication in court where in a watershed there will be a massive court case where everyone who claims pre-14 rights and riparian rights, for that matter, will get together in one big court case and the court will sort it out. And what comes out of that very, very long process is an actual decree that actually defines here's how much water belongs, you know, how much, here's how much of a water right all these different parties have. And that's kind of like the gold standard in water law. That's certainty where you can actually say, you know, the amount of those water rights. But most basins um, throughout California don't have, haven't had an adjudication and don't have a decree, so it can be somewhat uncertain exactly how much water um, different people have a right to. So, so how does the State Water Resources Control Board figure out how much water can be appropriated? It's not like every water course in California has a gauge on it. 
So how do they make their decisions? I mean, outside, you just described one, I guess, way that they make decisions, and that's through uh, like a, a court case. Um, but like overall, like how does the water board make decisions about how much water can be used, and how do they take into consideration what water is needed for environmental uses for like fish and wildlife? So this comes up when somebody wants to get a new water right um, in this modern day and age. And so the first thing the water board has to do is figure out, well, is there even enough water, you know, for that person to satisfy the right? Or, or has it all been given out already? Or, or maybe a lot of it's been given out and the rest is needed for fish and wildlife, right? And so what they do is um, a water, it's called a water availability analysis. And the thing you need to know here is that all water rights um regardless of type, riparian, appropriative, pre-14 appropriative, whatever they are, are required by statute, by law, to report the annual amount of water they use every year to the state, to the state water board. This is one of the few areas where the state water board does have direct jurisdiction over riparian rights or pre-1914 water rights. Okay, They, They can't tell you how much water you can use for those rights, but they can make you report it. And so the state maintains a database for every um, stream in Montana, every water course, of all the water rights that have been reported on that stream. And they, they know about the post-14 ones because that's what the water board, you know, they, they, they do the permits for those. But they also know about the repairings of the pre-14s. And so based on that data, they will look and they you, you, um, you basically hire a consultant, but you can run a model based on rainfall that will tell you how much water – is produced, um, you know, looking at uh, how much how much stream flow typically comes down that stream, uh, or has come down that stream in the past, and you can look at how much water is there, and then project how much you know in a typical year is going to be there in the future. And so the water board will do an analysis based on that modeling and based on how many rights we know are existing now, and decide how much water is left for your right. And so you might get some term, but, but, you know, you might be thinking like, well, that's fine, but, you know, it rains a lot some years and not others, right? So how do we, how do, how do we do that? Uh, how do we, how do we, if we're going to give you a new water, right? What do we do? Like, look at the driest year that's ever happened, like this year, or do we base it on a wet year or what do we do? And what they do is they'll, they'll put a term in there to say that um, it's called a bypass flow to say that your, you can only divert water you know, during these months of the year, you can only divert it if there's at least this much water flowing in the stream. Usually it's measured in cubic feet per second. That's kind of the standard we use in water law. And so, um, if, you know, it might be two cubic feet per second. So, um, in a really dry year, you're not going to be able, you know, depending on the stream, you might not be able to pump at all because the stream might never get that high with everyone else taking out of it. And so there may be years you don't even get your water. In a really wet year, you may have no problem to get all the water you want, but that's how they would kind of control the amount of water that you get to use. So that's the short answer. I know I know this is pretty dense and it's a lot of information, but I think the basic thing to know is there is a way to quantify this and, and, and not give out water um, that's already been spoken for. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is that um, there are one thing that has to be considered in the modern era um, is how much water is, is needed by fish and wildlife. This is not something historically that was considered um, with the water. And so in a lot of parts of the state, water rights were given out, frankly, like candy. And uh, we have over-appropriated streams where in a, in a really dry year, or sometimes even a normal year, the, the, the water right holders can basically suck the stream dry. 
Um, that is something that's not allowed um, in the modern era, or, or at least in theory, I know what happens. But there are tools in water law, particularly the public trust doctrine in California, that are designed to set aside water that's needed by um, by fish and wildlife and other public trust uses. And so that's something that's considered when they hand out any new water rights in California. Although, again, there are existing places where too many of them get out, get, have been given out in the past and there are dewatering problems. And that's a lot of what I deal with in my work. Yeah, actually, that that kind of brings me to another question. Um, but before I launch into it, I'll just remind everyone that they're listening to the Ecology Hour. And I'm Anna Halligan. I'm interviewing Matt Clifford, who is... Um, the California staff attorney for Trout Unlimited, and he is a water policy expert. And uh, we are live, so if you have some questions and I can fit you in, I will be happy to answer any questions you might have about California water policy. The question that I have related to the work that you do to um, protect stream flow for um, fish and other aquatic species and wildlife is, um, so that, you know, the, it sounds like sometimes water users who are, whether it's a ripe, well, I guess this would be an appropriative, right? An appropriative, a water user with an appropriative, right? Um, who is reporting every year about their water use, but maybe isn't necessarily using all of the water that, um, that they have appropriated to them. Um, my understanding is there's a mechanism, a legal mechanism, where water users can actually dedicate a portion of their water right back to the environment. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, you know, maybe give an example of a scenario where someone actually did that. <laughs> like, why would someone be interested in doing that? What's the incentive? Sure thing. Yeah. So in California, for all the backward things about a water law and all the complicated things and the kind of like, uh, you know, uh, 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 policies that we have we do have some kind of progressive things about california water law and one of them is the fact that we recognize the existence of rights uh it, it you can have a water right to water that that you leave flowing in the stream okay so it's a right that can be used like for fish and wildlife within a stream and the way we do that is you take um if you are a user that, that, that um a water user that you say you've got a, a farm and you irrigate and you've been using water for that purpose. And this is a little bit different than you said, Anna, because if it's water that you haven't been using, you actually can't dedicate it. But the, the water that you have been using on your on your farm, you can take a portion of that, a portion of that water um, and stop using it for irrigation and apply for what's called, um, after the, the code section, a 1707 dedication, water code section 1707. You can apply to transfer the use of that of that water to in-stream use. So now you've got a water right that's actually for use you know, to be left in-stream. Um, and this is commonly done, for example, you might do a project where someone's got a relatively inefficient irrigation system and you can go and, and install a modern drip system that takes a lot less water. So now there's a bunch of water that's been used before, but now it's freed up. And if you were just to like say, hey, great, I'm using do nothing else, you'd let that water flow downstream. But under water, under appropriate water right law, you'd be at risk of losing the right to that water through abandonment because you were using it before. Now you're just letting it flow down the stream. And in a lot of states, that's still the rule. You know, you basically, you don't use it or lose it. People, you know, might have heard that phrase in the context of water law. What this does is instead of just abandoning that water, you can, again, apply to change the place where that water is used. Where formerly it was used on this field, now we're going to use it in the stream channel 
for the purposes of fish and wildlife. And there's a, there's a process at the state, a change petition you can file and get approval to do that. Um, again, it has to go through that public protest notice, you know, the public notice and protest process where other users can, um, can object and, and can argue that that injures them somehow. And there's, there's ways that can happen. And there's a process for working through that. But at the end of the day, you end up with an in-stream water right for fish and wildlife. Again, that's something that not a lot of states have. I mean, some have it in some lesser form, but, but, but California has, um, you know, protects those in-stream rights for fish and wildlife. It's a really powerful tool that we can use here in this state. Frankly, it hasn't been used as much as uh, it probably ought to be. And a lot of us in this business are trying to get more examples of those 1707 dedications on the ground. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I have more questions about that. But before we launch into them, we actually have a call. Hopefully they're still on the line. So caller, uh, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, this is such a comprehensive coverage. I may have missed this in the technicalities. <laughs> but here's a scenario. Um, two properties or more adjacent on a ridge top, so there's really no question of stream beds or surface water. But uh, the properties all have wells, which are um, near each other uh, based on the properties, the size of the properties and property line. Are, is there any restriction or codification for the use of water from those individual wells? So the short answer is, as far as the state's concerned, there is not. Again, groundwater, unless it's, you know, arguably connected to a stream or meets the definition of subterranean stream, in the situation that you're describing, it very likely is not a subterranean stream because you're up on the ridge line. So we'll just assume that's the case. But there is no limit or permit um, generally required to use groundwater from the state. Now again, that can, that's slowly changing throughout California as we're getting, um, the sigma, those groundwater management plans I talked about. But, um, if it's in the, if it's in your part of the world around Fort Bragg, it's probably a long time, if ever, that you'll see that kind of restriction on the kind of properties you're talking about. The one thing that may happen in that situation, the way you described it, is there may be a dispute between the neighbors. Like if one person's calling a whole bunch of water, the other person might have, you know, it might, you know it, the other person's well might go dry or, or, or get reduced yield. And that would be a dispute that two neighbors would have to work out ultimately because there are groundwater rights. They're called, they're, they're like riparian rights and that they're correlative is a legal term, which means that you've got a right to use a reasonable amount of water, but so does, so does, so does everyone else who's, who's tapping from that same stream or in this case, that same, uh, that same aquifer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. So, um, again, if anyone has any que- a, a question, feel free to call in. Um, so, kind of back to that 1707 dedication topic, um, I'm curious how, if, if a, if a upstream water user decides that they'd like to dedicate part of their appropriative right for environmental use, how do we ensure that that water doesn't get diverted downstream? Yeah, so <clears throat> what happens in that situation is you've got a water right that, um, you know, it's now in the stream, but it's 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 got a priority. How do I explain this the best? It's still a valid water right, um, the same as it was when it was being used, like to say, an irrigated field, um, in the sense that you can protect it from other users. The way that's done in water law, typically, is a general matter. 
kind of hedge like that always. But riparian water rights typically come first. So, and, and let, let's forget, yes, sorry, let me, let me back up here. Let's, let's just get away from the in-stream flow dedication for a minute, but just, we, we can add that in a minute. But in general, riparian water rights have priority, first priority. So they all kind of get their water first. Then after that, appropriative water rights in the order of seniority. Right, so whoever is that, there's a, a principle in appropriative water rights called first in time, first in right. So you want to have the oldest right. So if my right dates, you know, was first put to use in 1872, and your right next door didn't come along until 1902, I get all my water. I'm called, I'm senior to you, and I get all the water from my water right before you even get a drop, right? That's the traditional rule. It doesn't always unfold this way in practice, but that's, that's the, that's the traditional rule. Okay, so if I'm going to take one of those rights and dedicate it to in-stream flow, if I'm the senior right, generally speaking, I could defend that right in-stream against junior users. Okay, so that's the way it works. Practically speaking, that can be a really hard thing to do um, because, you know, you have to have measuring devices, um, which aren't that easy, in the stream to see how much is is, is is flowing in the stream and, and kind of decide when someone else is, is pumping enough that they're taking your water. Natural conditions can interfere because streams are not just natural, like, like line ditches or pipes. They're living things, you know, with, with gravel bottoms sometimes that they can lose water. They can be what's called a losing stream where some of the water's, um, you know, seeping down into the underlying aquifer or they can be a gaining stream, right? And so what water is coming in for groundwater to feed the surface stream. So there's measurement problems. It can be a real practical problem. But in theory, you can defend that water right. And this is done in places um, like this, the, the Scott Shasta system, for example. There's 1707s that are going through this process right now. You can defend that water in stream um, and uh, stop other diverters from, uh, you know, from, from diverting it. So they have to leave at least the amount of your water in stream. Great. Is, um, yeah. Well, we have another question. Hopefully the caller's still on the line. So, caller, uh, feel free to ask your question. Hi. Um, my question is, does the state really have adequate data, and do they analyze it appropriately to determine in in all of these hundreds of, of applications for for water rights, are they really able to to tell people how much they can use in a way that doesn't uh, take water from other people who are drawing from the same surface water or from the fish and the fish and aquatic life in the stream? I, I mean, my understanding was that everyone was supposed to report, but it all went in all that information. If if the state got it at all, went into a black hole and. And the state never really got back to the user to determine to let them know you can or you can't or you're taking too much or you're you're okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'll answer it a couple different ways. And I think in the context of like issuing a new water right, like if if, if I'm going out there getting a new water right, I think the state has gotten pretty gun shy. This is just my opinion. Um, in that they know that the too many water rights have been given out in the past, and there's a lot of over-appropriated streams now. And so they tend to be more conservative about about giving the new ones out. Do they have enough data to do that? The general answer, I think, is yes. And more accurately, what they'll do is make you gather that data, right? So 
um, you will have to figure out how much water, you know, you have to hire a consultant typically you know, often for a larger water right to figure out how much, you know, do the hydrologically works, how much rainfall there is and how much stream flow is generated. And there's standard ways to do this. Um, and you'll have to show how much water is available. The weak link in that data, and I think you kind of alluded to this, is that sometimes everyone's supposed to report their water use to the water board, but not everyone does, right? So there can be riparian, for example, water right users out there. It could just be people, you know, streamside houses that have a pump in the creek or whatever that aren't reporting their use. And so there can be, um, there can be gaps in the data. In general, I think on the in coastal areas in particular, those gaps tend to be fairly small compared to the amount of water available. And I think the existing rules for handing out new water rights are, are conservative enough that I don't think – I haven't seen a lot of situations where I really worry that uh, with new rights there's not going to be enough water um, in general. Um, another related situation is – because that's, that's for handing out permits. But especially in a drought year like this one, there's a whole different can of worms, which is like when things get really dry and stream flows get low, how do we start cutting people off when there's not enough water to go around? And how do we do that while there's still enough water left in the stream for fish and wildlife? That is a world where current systems and current rules are woefully inadequate. And we're, we're seeing some of this in a few streams this summer on the Russian River and the Scott Shasta over in uh, the foothills of, of Mount Laston, uh, Deer Mill Antelope Creek, we're seeing a few areas where the state is delving into that and, and actually cutting users off through emergency rules and telling them you, you, there's not enough water to go around, you can't divert anymore. But there's not a very good system for that. And it's for, in, in years like this one, it's been, frankly, too little too late. And so a really big need, need we have in California is for better real-time management of water in California because yeah, we can hand out the rights at that stage and try to be good you know, about handing them out, but actually managing them when the rubber meets the road in the dry season um, is a whole other and much harder problem. And I think that's, you know, as, as the climate gets drier, I think that's something we're going to have to do a lot more of because we're not doing a very good job of it right now. Great. Thanks, Matt. So there there are a lot of people with questions right now. And I should just remind people, to, when you're calling in, please call 895 um, I'm still pretty new in the studio, so I can see the studio line is ringing, but I don't really know how to patch you in. So call 895-2448 if you're interested in asking Matt a question. So we have one more question. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hello? Yes. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Hey, um, you sort of touched on this, but more specifically or generally, since domestic use is such a small percentage in the larger water systems, and yet we see in this drought year that many municipalities are, you know, having strict uh, water limits per person per household, yet agriculture uses a lot more. seems like it would be easy to realign a small percentage of ag, ag water to these domestic uh, systems that where they can, you know, divert it to the domestic systems, and so people wouldn't have to, you know, conserve quite as hard as, they are now. Do you see government making any changes in that direction, or what do you think that look of yeah. happening? The short answer is I think we're seeing some of that now. And these rules, like I mentioned, some of these watersheds where we're actually seeing curtailments in this really dry year that we're having now. Um, and a lot of those, they will simply cut off the larger agricultural users 
sometimes all of them, and just say there's not enough water in the system, you can't divert anymore. But there's always an exception for um, public health and safety, basically for, for, for drinking water. And so that's one way it's being done is because those uses of water, drinking water and, and fish and wildlife, public trust uses are the two kind of, they rise to the top during a time of drought. Those are the most important uses, and the other uses get curtailed first, even if they are senior water rights, right? When there's not enough to go around, drinking water takes precedence, fish and wildlife take precedence. And so that's one way we're seeing it. In general, um, you know, as, as this project, we are seeing more kind of projects to try to take and, and free up water from agriculture and transfer them to more domestic uses and, and to industry and flow uses. And I, I, I've been involved in some projects like that. So, yeah, I think we are seeing that slowly, uh, slowly and surely. All right. Um, I think we might have time for another question or two. So let's see. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Am I live? You are. Yes. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for the show. And I'm actually calling from Lake County. And I wanted to bring this up, knowing if the attorney knows about the Winters Doctrine and Native American water rights. <laughs> I know a little bit about the Winters Doctrine. Um, I kind of grew up with the Winters Doctrine, strangely enough. My dad was a uh, <laughs> water lawyer uh, for the state of Arizona. And um, I used to hear about it at the dinner table all the time because he represented the state game and fish department in, in, in these massive water adjudications, including tri- tribal interests. And I don't touch upon it very much in my, my work. So if I try to say very much about the Winters Doctrine, I'll get in trouble. But I think the, the basic thing to know is that, you know, Native tribes, Native peoples generally have um, water rights, um, often uh, very, very, very senior water rights. Um, you know, go back to time immemorial because those, you know, uh, people have been on the land for, um, for, for eon, you know, long before white folks got here. And those water rights are, uh, because tribes are sovereigns, right, those water rights tend to be, they have relationships with the federal government, and those are federally protected water rights, and so um, the federal government has an interest, it, it, it takes a role in helping tribes defend those water rights. Um, normally that t- stuff takes place in federal court, but under the Winters Doctrine, it's the one of place where Congress has said that the federal government can be uh, involved in, in litigation in state court. And sort of the Winters Doctrine, um, it basically allows, provides the tribes participate in state court adjudications to um you know, to defend and, and, and adjudicate their water rights, where normally that would be in federal court. Um, that's pretty much what I know about the Winters Doctrine. Um, I'll, st- I'll, I'll stop there. But, you know, tribal water rights are their own thing in a whole world, and they're a very important um, aspect of water law in the modern era because they're, you know, they're, they're getting recognition that they have not gotten historically. That is a good question. I was not even aware. That's good to know. So let's see if we can eke one more question in. Caller, you're on there. Okay, I think that's me. And uh, what I'd like you to do is address what is maybe the stickiest issue around the county, and it hasn't really been addressed yet, but it does have to do with groundwater. But it's not just when one neighbor in the rural part of the county is pumping a lot per se, but they're pumping a lot and they're pumping it into trucks that then drive Mm -hmm. the water off-site to suspected illegal marijuana grows. What are the legalities involved? I I know this is an issue uh, increasingly in a lot of places, and I'm not gonna I'm gonna be careful here because I don't know the specific legalities very well. 
um, that apply to that, and I'll, I'll get something wrong. But I know there has to be some kind of legal water right that those um, trucks are out. You can't just pull water from a stream and take it wherever, right? That, that That's diversion and use of water, and there's got to be a water right covering that. Um, that being said, I think it's not always the case. You know, presuming you have that right, then, you know, does the water truck have to go and, and, and ensure that he's delivering that water? Does he need to see a license for the folks he's delivering it to to show that they're a legal operation versus an illegal operation? I'm not going to opine on that because I just don't know that area of the law very well, but I know that's been an issue, you know, like over in Siskiyou County and, and maybe some other places I know around, around Willits that's come up as well. And it's something that, um, that I don't understand very well. But you, de- you definitely, as a matter of water law, need to have that that use covered by some kind of a water right. I wish I could tell you more about that, but I think, uh, I think I'll, if I, I, I think I better be careful. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, in the last dwindling minutes that we have, and I do apologize if I couldn't get to your call tonight. It did seem like there was a lot of interest and I can understand why, because as complex and confusing as California water policy is, it's also really fascinating. Um, but I'm going to transition away from policy for a question for w- w- a different kind of question, Matt. And, this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last summer, but really for the last few years. If a drought is characterized as a deviation from normal conditions, do you consider the current water year a drought, or are we experiencing a new hydrologic norm, and what do we do we about it? We <laughs> don't like to use the word drought to describe this, and we're trying very hard not to use it. I mean, it's hard not to because people think of dry conditions as drought, but drought seems to apply like a temporary like things are really dry now, it's unusual, but there's going to be a point where things get back to normal, right? I mean, that's how traditionally we think about drought. It's like this episodic event. And, you know, what, what science is telling us is there's a really good chance in California this is not an episodic event. You know, this, this the, the climate is just getting drier. And so, yeah, we've had a really, this is the driest year right now since 1977. I mean, it's really severe and bad. And maybe it'll rain this winter. I sure hope it will. And, but there's a good chance that you know, we'll, we'll see more years like this soon. And if we don't see one next year, maybe we'll see it the year after that. You know, I think we can expect years like this to be recurring more and more frequently now. And it's something a state's really going to have to grapple with because our whole water rights system and our water use right now are kind of, it came up in an age where we're assuming there's more water out there than we're actually going to have or that we actually do have right now. And we're going to have it, you know, we're going to have to align some things different. We have to change and, you know, use our water differently, figure out how to collect more in the winter, for example. And we're going to have to change our regulations. And, you know, some things that are legal now are going to be more regulated because there's just not enough water to go around. And people are going to, we're going to have to enforce those changes at scale. And so that's something, you know, the state's really going to have to grapple with, hopefully starting right now. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and have this conversation with me and to answer all of these questions. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.